Welcome to The One Hour Intern. I'm your host, Will Brigger. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Mickey Malka, Latin American businessman, investor, entrepreneur. He's the founder of Ribbit Capital, a venture capital firm targeting early stage companies that bring technology and innovation to the financial service industry. Mickey, thank you for being here today. Well, it's good to be with you today. So right now, we're in a very crazy economic world and the world is slowing down, but you're staying busy and the, fi- the fintech world is keeping going and is growing right now. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So when you think about the concept of money has always been something that is it's meant to be used in real time and real fast. And what has happened with COVID and the last nine months is that this has accelerated dramatically. You don't care for cash as much. You care much for digital. You're not going to walk to a bank branch anymore. You're not going to buy insurance from a broker. You're not going to do mortgage the way you used to do it. So what's going on around the world is that financial services and the digital financial services is just accelerating. And it's going super fast. So you have all of these companies that for years have been trying to fight the banks and the regulators and trying to show the world that it's much easier to use everything electronically than physically. And right now, it's showing up that they're winning. So the way we describe it, Will, is that I'm a big fan of Star Wars. We're massive fans. So here in Rivet. So we always talk about that there's the empire, that's the banks, the big insurance companies that once have been around for 100 years. They're the rebels. And those are the little spaceships that look like they're trying to beat this death star. And those are the fintech companies. And what we have is a battleship of Star Wars that it's happening at different levels in different places, but it's a global phenomenon where new digital companies are trying to beat the established companies that have been around for 150 years. Yeah. So now that we know about you in the world today, let's go back to your childhood in Venezuela. What were you like as a kid? Oh, I was a very fun kid. I was very shy. I always had a good sense of humor, making jokes, but very shy. And I spent my time understanding, for whatever reason, I always tried to understand how everything worked. And everything meant business. I will, was one of those kids that will walk into a fast food restaurant, and instead of looking at the menu, I was counting how many people were walking in and trying to guess how many transactions they were doing per hour and then trying to guess how much money they were making per day. But it was a beautiful place to grow up. It was in the 1970s and 80s were great years for Venezuela. You could travel. You could experience the world. The best teams and companies were coming to the country. You had access to almost anything you wanted. And the schools that I attended were just great. My friends were fantastic. So it was a fun place to grow up in. It's changed since then. It's the opposite now. But it used to be very different 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. Are there any stories from your childhood where you remember big life-changing moments or experiences? There are many of them. I would say one of my favorites the other day, my mother gave me a photo album of, of my journey as a kid. And there was one great letter I had written to the tooth fairy when I was nine years old. And I said, dear tooth fairy, here's my tooth. I don't trust our local money. Could you pay, please pay me in dollars? When you grew up in a in an environment that it just gave you the chance to learn so much about real world and economics, 
so many things were different to me. We will spend a lot of time understanding what the world looked like. Everything was happening in Venezuela. So growing up there and having the chance to to talk to all these amazing people that will just stop by the country and try new things there was impressive. Like I remember the Concorde, the jet the flight, it was the only place in Latin America where the Concorde stopped. And it was once a week and we will all stay outside trying, wanting to hear when the plane broke the, the speed of sound because it did a loud boom in the city. That kind of stuff, which was like a fun, small place to grow up in. Yeah. And you said that you had a lot of interaction with innovation and a lot of successful people just coming to visit and experience what was going on. What was that like? It was a place where the best faculty teachers from the world will come and give conferences. Presidents from around the... In the 1980s, Venezuela was considered the best place in Latin America. So you had access to read every single U.S. magazine you wanted to read. When a academic did a book tour, they came to Venezuela and was part of their program. So literally, you didn't have to travel to get access to all this information. This is way before the internet, right? So the more you can get your hands into reading stuff and listening to these people get interviewed on TV, you will just learn a lot more. And that was the kind of place where I had a chance to grow up. It was an emerging economy in Latin America, but at the same time, it has the closest connection to the U.S. that any country had. Yeah. And living there, did your parents instill any specific values or did that kind of really connect to the U.S. culture and innovative and and educational culture give you any particular values that you hold true today? I think the best values they gave me was hard work, face out, get out of your comfort zone. They, the way I learned English is they threw me on a plane when I was six years old. I had no English whatsoever. Just I only knew yes and no. And they put me on a plane. They sent me to Philadelphia. and They put me on a summer camp for eight weeks without any contact with them, just by a phone call once every two weeks. And they just show me the level of what you need to have the instincts to survive and to win. And those are probably the best values that you can ever ask for. So it was of always love and, and care for, but then the values of being independent and knowing how to thrive no matter the situation. Were there any other particular moments where they helped instill these values of hard work and getting out of your comfort zone? When I started my first business, I was 14. And I remember going to my parents and asking them for money. And they said, no, that is not the way you do it. And we're not going to give you money. You go find a way to explain from somebody else. Go get it from somebody else and explain to them how, how you're going to pay them back. So I went to my grandparents. And I'm sure they talked behind the scenes between them. I, I was not aware of it. And my grandfather said, sure, I'll lend you the money, but we, you have to pay me back with interest. And it just created always these principles of being responsible in whatever you commit to. You have to be able to deliver. Your word is the most important aspect in life. And I've taken that to heart because in a world where everything feels like it's too legally, a handshake and an agreement and your verbal word, word means a lot more than any paper. Yeah. So... Now the year's 1991, you're my age, you're 17, and 
in the US, Nirvana's the biggest album. Gas is $1.22. Postage stamps, 29 cents. What do you like? I was a fan of Erasure, the music group. I was looking at every game of the Chicago Bulls that I could find my way. That was actually one of my first businesses was putting a satellite dish in the roof of my building, figuring out how to assemble so I can scramble the signal from WGN in Chicago in, on a Galaxy One satellite and be able to watch Michael Jordan play. So if I remember correctly, that was the first year they won the world championship. So that's what I remember from that year. And prior to this and during this kind of high school years of your life, what were the biggest struggles that you faced as a kid? The biggest struggle was probably that I stuttered a lot. And I had to learn, I don't know if you ever watched the movie King's Speech, but I used to speak a lot like the King's Speech, like the King of England in the 1940s, 30s. He was, I think it was Edward. I used to stutter like him. And if you see that movie, the therapies that he went through were the same ones that I went through. When you're a teenager and you stutter in high school, could be it was one of the biggest challenges, how to be able to pace myself and learn how to speak without stuttering. That was probably the my biggest challenge growing up. Yeah. And how did you work to overcome that? Oh my God, perseverance. I took, I did the therapies. I spent hours having to read the dictionary out loud, every single word in the dictionary, the definition from the A to C and then back from C to A. I had to do all these aspects to make my brain memorize words in a way that I wouldn't stutter. So it was probably, you know, they said it takes 10,000 hours to master any skill. I probably spent more than 10,000 hours reading a dictionary. Wow. Out, out loud. Wow. And you, before you had mentioned that you were a pretty shy kid when you were younger, did your stuttering have an effect on that? Yeah. It definitely, I think it was part, part of it. And as I got more comfortable, as I turned 17 and I got more comfortable with myself and I either I was okay with stuttering and now it's part of who I am and I don't care. And that's something that you grow up into or that I was able to control and master parts of it, my self-confidence and my shyness went away. Yeah, yeah. Were there any other experiences in high school that are pretty valuable to you today? In high school, we did a trip to, we did a trip to Israel. It was a one, they, in the U.S., they have a name for those kinds of trips. It's your first trip when you, your birthright, I think it's called. Or, but we did it when we were in the 10th grade going into 11th that summer. So that was 1990 for me. And we landed in Israel on July 31st of 1990. And Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait on August 1st of that year. And he threatened to throw missiles to Israel. So one of the lessons I learned during that time was that we were 100 kids. We went from the same school to do this trip. And 85 of them were asked, by their parents to return home. And there were 15 of us who just said, no way. We want to learn. We want to be here. We want to be part of this. And I got to give credit to my parents for letting me stay. I don't know if I will do the same to my kids these days. It's a funny question I will have to ask myself in the next few years. But staying there and watching how a country prepares to war and how my parents supported me and have gas masks in our rooms where we were staying or any kind of thing was just one of those things that it's imprinted as one of those moments where you learn so much. And the friends that were there, funny enough, all of us have 
kept a close contact over the years, just from experiencing three months together during what was a very sensitive time in, in the history of, of Israel. Yeah. And what did it feel like being there in a war zone, in a place where you didn't really have any security at all? It was not a war zone yet. It never happened. They only launched a few missiles and nothing bad really happened after the whole thing. But it was the first war in almost 20 years. So it was quite interesting to see in person. It felt, you felt the connectivity. You felt the, you felt how people connect to each other when there's a common enemy. And we may all have our different points of view every day, but when we all connect for one big reason, what, what you learn from it is just amazing how people are willing to evolve much faster than you would expect. And that's what I've learned that way. And I learned that there's always, when you can find a common goal or a common enemy that to go against, humans are an amazingly capable machine to adapt and win. And like now with COVID, we have an enemy on COVID and the amount of technology going into vaccines or treatments in eight months is decades. Yeah. And that is the same thing you see now in a, in a war. It's the same kind of phenomenon. Yeah. And what about standing up to, or not necessarily standing up, having your parents allow you to stay? What did it feel like to have that respect and freedom? I think it shaped a lot of, again, it's one of those things that you don't understand then, but you realize over time that they shape who, who, who you become. Giving teenagers the independence to find their value systems is crucial. And sometimes it's hard to do. But in this case, for them, it was the right thing. They trusted me. They trusted I was not going to make a stupid decision. And they trusted that I, I will be responsible. Now, did they overtrust? Maybe a little bit. But that's, that's how it goes. Yeah. So when you return home, Venezuela has started to fall apart. What did it being in a, a country that's not super stable and is was used to be such a great place, but started to fall, like I said, started to fall apart. There was hyperinflation. What was it like to be in a country like that? It was really unproductive. You will, Will, for you, how does it feel every time you start a conversation in the last six months talking about politics, talking about Trump or Biden? Just becomes an argument, no matter what. People like a yelling fight. Yeah. And you spend all this quality time. One of the things I always envy uh, uh, when I compare the 1990s in Venezuela to the U.S. when I came here on, during those years was that in Venezuela, every meeting, no matter social meeting, family gathering, business meeting, school, class, had the first 20 minutes, you had to talk about politics somewhere because there was so much noise. And if you added up the number of hours that you spent doing that, it was so much unproductive hours in life. And it just created nothing but anxiety and nothing but insecurity or not knowing what the future looked like. That's how it felt like. It feels like right now it feels here. I thought I, I came to America to avoid that, to not have it again, because here you would never talk about politics for more than two minutes. But the last year and a half or maybe four years have just reminded me what was Venezuela in the 1990s, where you couldn't get away from the conversation and spend hours talking about this topic on a monthly basis. The second thing was you could see corruption became bigger. So you could see people getting really rich from being corrupt. And then you started to see more poor people than you've ever seen together. So the extremes of wealth and poverty were getting out of control, which meant more crime, 
more insecurity, more envy, and then you spend more of your time protecting yourself or justifying it than living a life. And that's how it feels. You suddenly, you are free, but you're not free because there's 10, 20 things you cannot do anymore. That's how it felt. It slowly felt like, and it was very slow. It was not fast. It was not overnight. It was not a revolution that happened one night over the next one. It just was years in the making. And when you look back, it's obvious that this is a slow motion picture. It's not a ultra fast and 100 meter sprint. And personally experiencing that slow loss of freedom and seeing the growth of the kind of income equality gap, what effect did that have on you in the long run? It just told me that that was not a place I wanted to be long term. It's not a place where I can responsibly be a business person without being corrupt. It showed me that it was not a place where I would raise a family. It showed me that no matter how much good you want to do, it's much bigger than one person. And it's just hard when the incentives are not aligned. And then it just opened my mind to think different, to think, hey, maybe my life is not here and what's out there. And open my mind to technology, to the internet, to living abroad, to experiencing other countries, to move around. And that's what triggered. I was 20, 2018 when I started my first company, 17. And a year into it, I was just already starting to travel and figure out what else was to do with this company outside Venezuela. And that mentality to expand your mind and engage in different things and even just move your location is a difficult idea to grasp and follow. How did you know that was the right decision to make and how did you get to that decision? So I think it's genetically embedded. I don't have any other way to explain it. So my family has not been in the same country for more than one generation for the last four or five generations. And they've moved around for different reasons, sometimes religious, sometimes political, sometimes wars. But maybe I'm more prone to it. It just happened to be that I was born there. I grew up there, but it doesn't mean that it was my place to be. Second is this idea that the world is much bigger than any one country. That a country is an imaginative limit of ideas that one puts in your head, but the world is much bigger. So the freedom to explore has always been important to me, just to be able to not construct to to what everybody else does. Are there any moments of exploration that helped you figure out that, that was life value that you were going to live by? I think it's it's daily. It's just not accepting the status quo. It's just asking always the question, what else? What am I missing? Like putting myself in the other person's shoes and what's the other person seeing that I'm not seeing? It's one of those things where you just spend time thinking out loud and, and reflecting. And if you're willing to listen to somebody else's opinion, you will probably learn something that you didn't know. So that open mind, is, I think, is critical. And the day you stop thinking like that, might as well call yourself bored and stop being creative. Yeah. So even though you did start to see your country collapse around you, you stayed for a little bit and you attended university in Venezuela. Why did you stay for college and what was your experience like? I stayed because it was easy to stay and run your company. I didn't have to study much. I had friends that really helped me and dear friends from kindergarten who worked with me together. So they will help me with the work, the load, the exams, everything that I needed to prepare to have a degree. My parents only condition 
was always you do whatever you want, but make sure you have a degree to fall <laughs> in case you fall. Yeah. And so that was the kind of bargain deal that we had agreed. How do you feel mm-hmm. about that? Having something to fall back upon that idea? In retrospect, I don't regret it because I was able to to do both things and have fun along the way. But I think the best plans are the ones that you just have conviction and you don't have a backup. You just have to execute and move mountains. Do you have any personal examples of those plans? Meaning any moments where you didn't have a backup plan and you just went for it, you tried to move mountains? Oh, yeah. When I came to California, it was my first time moving to the U.S. And with Becky, who you've met, and Sigal, who was two years old, and we said, listen, there's no backup plan. There's no way we go back to Venezuela. So we either make it work here or we just don't know what we're going to do. There's, there was nothing. So we made a life plan in 2007 to come here, and that was the end of it. So yes, many times in decisions I've made with no backup, acknowledging, knowing that there's no backup, so it's the gasoline that makes you wake up every morning. Yeah, that's fair. So you had mentioned that you were working on a company while you were attending university. What was that company, and what was it like being part of a startup and kind of creating your own business? So the company was around financial services. It was it was a stockbroker in the local markets. We were doing equities and fixed income, and we were helping Venezuela manage their money outside of Venezuela. And the business was, to me, it felt super easy to understand the dynamics. It was, I don't know why, but it's just one of those things that you either wire, you're not wired. I was very wired to understand it. I did not know what a culture of a startup was, to be honest. I was not spending too much time in culture. I look back and. I cannot believe that people were trusting me when I was 18 years old or 19 and, and they would accept work for me and they were 10, 15 years older than me. Still to this day, there's somebody who worked closely with me that I recruited when I was 20 and that person was 30. And you fast forward 25 years, still works with me, 10 years old, 15 years, 10 years older than me. So it just tells you these crazy environments that we can live. And I think when, I, when you ask them and you don't know why, you just said it was conviction. Is that you had a conviction and you seem to be one of those people that were going to treat people fairly. So that's what I learned, to be honest, is conviction and being transparent to people and treat them fair can get you anything you want. And that's a principle that I've always had in every company I built since then. Yeah. Before we move into your professional career, let's take a break and let's go to a segment called the coffee break. which is where you can tell a story from any part of your life, no chronological order, that was funny or just plain up embarrassing. Does anything come to mind? Oh my God. All right. So you've interviewed Wentz. So since you've interviewed Wentz and people have a chance to listen to him, I'm going to use one story that happened to the two of us. We got introduced when we were both 22 or 23 years old. And I went to Buenos Aires to meet him. And we had a terrible meeting. It was such a bad meeting. He was The chemistry was not there in the room. But then that evening, he felt bad that I traveled all the way there to meet him. So we went to have a, some drinks at a, at a bar. And long story short, this ended up being into, we got into a bar fight with some other guys. And I saved him from getting his getting it handed to him. 
And we then ran away and we had to run for 14 blocks before those guys stopped following. And after that bar fight, we looked at each other and said, eh, maybe this partnership can actually work. And because of it, it's when you fast forward 20 something years, it's been business partners for that long. Yeah. Wow. What sparked the fight? Some nice looking girl in the bar, but she was not alone. Uh-huh. And were you going for the nice looking woman or was he? I was, my back was against the bar. I was not, I did not see what was going on. Okay, perfect. <laughs> so now back to the serious nature. Your first company was a, a fintech company. When did you know that that was what you wanted to be involved in and that was the space for you? I think I knew since I was six, seven years old. I just knew I was wired to be in this space forever. I didn't call it fintech. I didn't know it was going to be like this. I had no idea what it would look like. But definitely the concept of understanding and helping people get access to financial products, which translates to better quality of life, which translates to more opportunities and translates to better education, to me, was always embedded somewhere or the other. Yeah. So... As you mentioned, then you, your next company was working with Wences. You were 22 and you were working in a new major company. What was it like in that environment? And what was the partnership there? And were there any other major partners in your life that have helped you learn a lot, a lot of lessons along the way? Oh, yeah. Many people and always people that were older than you, since you have so much more to learn from them and their experiences. That was an interesting time. In that team, we were building E-Trade, basically. Imagine online trading or Robinhood today. We were building the equivalent of, of a Robinhood, but bear in mind in 1998, 99 for Latin America. And the idea was if anybody should be able to buy stocks or buy bonds and get a better yield for their money safe, which was, it's again, good for society. But technology was early. It wasn't easy. We were doing it all over, the, all over Latin America, from Mexico to Chile to Brazil. Argentina, Venezuela, Colombia. So it was one of those things that it just consumed a lot of bandwidth. So we spent a lot of time in the air, a lot of time traveling. And the culture back then was a little bit different. We were the first generation wearing t-shirts to go to work and jeans and open offices. That, that was when the whole internet started. And that was a shock to a lot of people. It was not very easy to accept. Now it's much easier. Now there's so many movies and TV shows and then you can learn and it's been around for 30 years, 20 years. But back then it was extremely rare and difficult compared to the life of the lawyers and Wall Street in ties and fancy suits. So the culture you created was one of much more creativity, less rules. And it showed in the way you operated. And now that, that's a trademark of that time. And what did that approach to business do to you and your kind of approach now, but also your mental state, your values, your interactions with other people? So I would say the biggest thing is don't judge a book by the cover. It's what you learn. And this is what matters the most at the end is what drives people. So spending more time understanding what's, what are the drivers to different people? Why are you doing what you're doing? It's become critical in life. And being able to ask that question to anybody, like, why are you doing this podcast? You and I chatted about it offline, but there's a reason why you're doing it. and and that then derives in your passion to, to learn from others. So if you spend time understanding what people do, what they do, you realize that the potential of society is much bigger. It's just a matter of making sure that you find the right people with the right motivations. 
Yeah. And you found that person in Wednesdays, or I guess, did you find that person in Wednesdays? No, he found it in me. (laughs) And how did you find Wednesdays? And how did you take this step, the risk to work with him and have a partner, learn about their values and really move yourself forward in the world? Well, I think it was a combination. It was mutually, it has to be like any relationship. It has to be mutual. It can never come from one side. So you got to go in and be humble to learn from the other, have no ego and keep it very honest. So I think what we share in common were those values. No matter who was right or wrong, we will always do what we thought. We will never argue in front of people, but always in, in the private room. We just kept it very honest and with clear rules of engagement. And I think that matters for anything in life. It matters for your best friends. When you have an argument with your best friends, you should have a policy on or rules on how are you going to have a clean talk. You should do the same with your boyfriend or girlfriend or your spouse. You should do the same with your business partners. I think it's a value system that you need to have anywhere you are. And that's how it worked. I tend to say that it was my looks and his brains, which at the end worked best. But that's for one, him to do. One might argue the other way around. Yeah, but you haven't seen him lately, so it's obvious. While you were working with him and you were in this mutual partnership with your first company together, Bling Nation, you were facing a lot of, maybe I'm wrong, this was not your first company together or, or it was? That was our fourth company together, okay. but it was the first one in the U.S. In the U.S., yeah. That's, mm-hmm. You were facing a lot of kind of extreme circumstances and you had to fly back and forth from Caracas to Silicon Valley every couple of weeks. What was that experience like and how did you deal with kind of all the work coming in at the same time and so much travel and so much overload of stimulus? I think I'm, I'm better when I'm overload than when I have free time, free idle time. And back then, at the moment, you're not thinking about it. You're doing what's right. You're doing what's right like as a son to your parents. You're doing what's right as a partner, business partner to your business. You're doing what's right to your spouse. You're doing what's right as a father to your kids. I think there's never a great answer for this. It's just wake up and do what you think is right. And you have to be able to live with the decisions that you make and not regret them no matter what you do. So I never regretted the time I came to the U.S. and I could have stayed another year in Venezuela and helped my family with a health issue, but I decided not to do it because it wasn't what was best for my family, my immediate family, but decided to sacrifice my body by doing this for them, whatever amount of time it took to compensate for it. You just make decisions and you, you live with them. And I don't regret, I never regret them. Yeah. How do you make it so that you don't regret them? You make a lot of mistakes in your life and it's hard to move past them. How do you? You have to celebrate the mistakes more than the successes. And you got to be open and share out loud. He made this mistake and here's what I learned from it. The mistake, I'm sorry. And I've made mistakes, a lot of mistakes, long list of distinguished mistakes over my life. But I've always found a way to voice that I did and make sure to remind myself and my walls in my office at home are more filled of mistakes to remember that I made them than they are about successes. Successes are always celebrate for you, but mistakes is the way you learn. So keeping them in check and making sure that you keep making them, it means that you're, making, you're, you're, you're taking enough risks and you're getting yourself in uncomfortable areas. 
is there a particular failure or two that helped you gain that mentality or that was really valuable in educating you and helping you move forward? There were many, but one happened to me here in Silicon Valley, actually. When we started Blink Nation, we had a thesis of a business model and two and a half years into it, we realized that we were off, we were wrong. And we offered to, with a big shame, return money to our investors, the money that we had raised to do this business. And in Latin America, people will have immediately taken my money back and say, here, thank you, I don't care, screw up, move on, whatever. But here, the reaction was different. They said, no, we don't care. We gave you the money because we think you guys are extremely creative. You go figure out something different. If you don't have any great ideas in the next year, come back to us and we'll chat about it. So what I learned was that Silicon Valley, in particular, had a mentality of failure is it's not encouraged, but it's accepted as a method of fiber of the culture. It was an incredible moment because until then, I had never experienced failure in a company. We've experienced failures in the day-to-day, but never in the outcome of a, business, a whole business. And it was impressive to see how it was embraced. To me, it changed my mind. And those months was the moment when I convinced myself that this was not a place to come for a few years. This was the place you wanted to live a longer part of your life. Yeah. And, you know, that different change in mentality of accepting failures, how have you utilized that in your own life that or that these Silicon Valley board members showed you? On everything. I make daily, I tell my kids that I make daily failures as a father. I don't know what I'm doing. And with each one of them, I'm learning along the way and making sure they know that I will make a lot of mistakes. I make failures at work every day. And we celebrate them. We have a wall here in the office with some of our biggest failures as, as investors. It's fun to have that wall instead of the wall of glory. We learn more from it. So I, just, I don't know. I think it goes hand in hand with your culture. Yeah. In a different kind of note, were there any moments that were big breaks for you that you, real, you realized you did something right? Oh, many times. And I always say that we are lucky. 80% of what we do is luck. But luck is not something that you just sit on the couch and you wait for it to land on your laps. You got to go out there and find it. And you got to hit the road and spend time in the road. But I would say that I've had much more luck than failures in life. And But I probably have worn more shoes and used more rubber and spent a lot of time out there than most people have too. So it comes. So I've been very lucky in life. But it comes from searching for that luck. It's not just waiting for it and winding and complaining if you don't get it. Yeah. So looking back from a bigger picture now, are there any stories or particular moments that really stand out to you as when you learned a value or when something or just a critical moment in your life that is really relevant to who you are today? It's a hard question, William, because I think we're, we are the combination of multiple failures and successes in life. But if I have to go back to the core aspects is when you're young and you have to fight to because you have an impairment of some sort, could be language, could be motor, could be sports, could be whatever you want to call it, and you are able to dominate, to conquer and dominate it, I think you learn very young that you can be better at anything whenever you put your mind to it. 
I think that's um, those are the events. Like I look back at the whole event and it's being put together like that, and also having the right family fiber that allows you to be your own self and not have to be the copy. I grew up in a family of all doctors, and I'm the only one who hasn't been a doctor in I don't know how many generations. Actually, that's a very interesting point to bring up. What was it? What was going through your mind when you weren't? a doctor when you were, took a different path than the rest of your family? I was happy. <laughs> there was no way they were going to give me anything that will go in that direction. And being able to choose by myself and being able to have the freedom to choose, it's the most valuable gift I, I ever gotten. Yeah. Okay. So as we come to close with our time, I'll ask you just some even more bigger picture questions. Now that you've reached a pinnacle of success, how do you define success? I have not reached no pinnacle of success because success, you never achieve it. I play what I call an infinite game and an infinite game never ends. You may be ahead, you may be behind, but the rules can change tomorrow and the game keeps changing. I don't think about it in those terms. I'm just, I just want to play the game as long as I can. Yeah. How has that definition changed over time as you have been ahead or behind of your current definite or of your definitions? I think that when I was younger, I thought everything had a game, was a game and you had to have a score by the end of the fourth quarter and you will know if you won or you lost. And then you start winning some games and you realize there's not enough joy from it. And that's because you're playing a very short-term game. What's important is play a life game. It's just enjoy the game and think about life as a game and Make sure that you know that the rules change every single day. Yeah. And is there a motto that inspires you or that you live by? Be transparent. Be humble. Have a good sense of humor. I think if you can combine those three consistently and you put them to work and then you add your own self, be motivated and have a high level of integrity. Once you have those combined, you're fine and you can... Just adapt yourself to any, any situation. Yeah. So as we close, I'll go to our final segment, which is called the PowerPoints. Imagine someone takes away three bullet points from our conversation, from your life experience. What would those three things be, in your opinion? There's no winning and losing in life. It's just being ahead or being behind. Play the infinite game. Don't compromise for somebody else's game. Number two, always tell people that you love or that you appreciate. Tell them consistently that you love them and you appreciate them. Number three, you're never an expert. You're never knowledgeable. You can always learn if somebody else knows more than you. So keep learning. Yeah, great. Mickey, thank you for the time. My pleasure. And thanks for having me. These great questions. You made me think about 1991 in ways that I have not thought before. Thank you for listening to One Hour Intern. I hope that you explore more of our episodes. Follow us at One Hour Intern. The one is spelled using the number one. And if you enjoyed, please rate, follow, and subscribe. The One Hour Intern is produced, hosted, and written by me, Will Brigger. My co-producers are The Blue and Studio Pod. Till next time, thanks. Thanks.